Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Israel asking Gaza residents to evacuate as it prepares for a major ground offensive into the territory. Hamas, on the other hand, tells residents to stay. The Biden administration bolstering support for Israel. What's next in rescuing hostages as the Secretary of Defense says now is not the time for neutrality. Pro-Palestinian rallies around the world. What do people at one in New York City have to say? After Hamas's call to action, one person is dead and others are injured. We bring you details of the latest tragedies. As billions of dollars in weapons go to Ukraine, what's the impact on U.S. military readiness? An expert tells us why he's confident in U.S. service members, but concerned with their leadership. And after 10 days without a speaker, House Republicans choose Congressman Jim Jordan as the new nominee. Will he be able to win the next vote? Over 3,100 people dead as the war between Israel and Hamas enters day seven. Israeli troops are preparing for a ground offensive into Gaza as they tell local residents to flee. In a nationally televised address late Friday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to destroy Hamas. This comes as the Israeli army prepares for an expected ground invasion into the Gaza Strip. The death toll in the war has risen to 3,200 by Friday, including 1,900 in Gaza and 1,300 in Israel. We are striking at our enemies with unprecedented might. I emphasize, this is just the beginning. Our enemies have only begun paying the price. And I won't detail what is yet to come, but I tell you that this is only the beginning. In a statement Friday, the Israeli military said they carried out small raids into Gaza. For the first time in this war, ground troops are operating inside Gaza, fighting terrorists and searching for evidence about the missing hostages held by Hamas. But this is not yet the beginning of the major ground invasion. Israel on Friday asked residents living in the northern part of Gaza to flee south before the beginning of Saturday. The evacuation order covers over one million people, or roughly half of Gaza's population. The United Nations said, We consider it is impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. And we strongly appeal for any such order to be rescinded, avoiding what could transform what is already a tragedy into a calamitous situation. Israel says the evacuation order is to minimize harm to civilians, as Hamas is known to use human shields. The terrorist organization asked Gaza residents to ignore the evacuation order and stay in their homes. Temporary evacuation is reversible. Loss of human life is not. What we all hear is not the UN's concern for civilians. What we hear is the UN's indifference to the murder of 1,300 Israelis. The UN is making it clear that it doesn't want Israel to defend itself. To the north of Israel, shelling occurred on Friday between the Israeli army and Hezbollah along the border with Lebanon. Reuters News said one of its videographers was killed during the exchange of fire. Six other journalists were injured. 
Israel said it will investigate what happened. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The Biden administration today reaffirming support for Israel. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. How is the administration reacting to Israel's call for Gazan civilians to evacuate ahead of a possible ground invasion? Good evening to you as well. The White House today acknowledged that it would be, quote, a tall order for a million people to evacuate Gaza, which is already a combat zone. And President Biden in the speech this afternoon again vowed to stand with Israel while also noting a need to address a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Watch. The United States, make no mistake about it, stands with Israel. It's also priority for me to urgently address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. That the overwhelming majority of Palestinians had nothing to do with Hamas. And as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing to destroy Hamas, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is in Israel and telling Netanyahu that the U.S. is sending over munitions at the speed of war. He says now is not the time for neutrality. Watch. Now, this is no time for neutrality or for false equivalence. Terrorists like Hamas deliberately target civilians. But democracies don't. And when it comes to the hostage crisis right now, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with leaders in the Middle East to try to secure the release of the roughly 150 hostages now in Hamas hands, which includes less than a handful of Americans. And President Biden today met virtually with the family members of the 14 Americans who are still missing. He says he promised to do everything he can to bring back every single American. Back to you. We're hoping for the safe return of those Americans and the other hostages that are being held by Hamas. Iris, thanks for that update. One person is dead and three others injured. That's as Hamas called for a day of rage today. We want to warn you that the following footage is graphic and includes video of a stabbing. A Jewish teacher in France is reportedly dead after a knife attack. Two others have been injured. An asylum seeker reportedly went on a stabbing spree, attacking various people, screaming Allahu Akbar. France's President Emmanuel Macron visited the school on Friday afternoon. Also, a staffer at the Israeli embassy in China was stabbed on the sidewalk in Beijing. Footage shows the diplomat being stabbed multiple times by a man in white. The attack came after Israel's foreign ministry expressed deep disappointment that Beijing didn't condemn Hamas's terrorist attack over the weekend. And lastly, as you can see here, around 500 protesters in the West Bank marched towards the Israeli border as part of the so-called Day of Rage. Another clip shows Lebanese police dispersing the crowd using tear gas. Other Palestinian supporters also rallied around the world today. And here in New York City, hundreds of people gathered in Times Square to make their voices heard. NTD's Jason Perry went to the event and talked to some people on the ground. Tensions have been high since Saturday when Hamas terrorists crossed into Israeli territory and murdered over 1,300 people. That terrorist act sparked the war between Israel and Hamas. Since then, many have been vocal about their feelings for both sides in the war. Many people are gathering here in Times Square in New York City on Friday. 
A former Hamas leader called for action in support of Palestinians, and tens of thousands joined in protests in the Middle East and around the world. I spoke to some people here in Times Square to get a better understanding of how they feel about the situation. The Palestinian, the people are different and, you know, the political problems are one thing, uh, but it's completely unacceptable to blockade a whole population, cut them off from electricity and water. The killing of innocent civilians is unacceptable. Uh, killing of, um, you know, women and children is unacceptable, uh, including those heinous acts carried by Hamas. But uh, ultimately, you know, they have a right to their freedom. So now I'm not speaking about any organization, I'm speaking about the people who lost their houses, lost their land, lost their life, uh, and they don't have the basic needs to live, even under the siege and after all this situation, they don't have the basic needs. So um, I, don't know what, I don't know what's the solution, but the solution now, they have at least to stop killing them. I, I hope the people who are helping the other side, which is Israel, to stop, to at least Go see the other side. Don't have only one source of information. Check the other side and uh, learn about it or educate yourself about it. Although city officials have said there are no credible threats to the city, every member of the NYPD is in uniform and ready. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. The U.S. has sent tens of billions of dollars worth of military equipment to Ukraine as multiple conflicts in other parts of the world are escalating. How is this impacting American military readiness? We're joined by an international military strategist who tells us that his concern is not with the preparedness of U.S. military service members, but rather with the politics of their leadership. Darren Gobb, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks, Tiffany. Always good to see you. Thanks for having me on. To begin the, with this new war in the Middle East, the U.S. is still sending aid and arms to Ukraine. Now, the Pentagon has been warning Congress recently it's low on funds to resupply weapons in the states. Now, foreign policy experts are warning there could be a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. How ready is the U.S. military resources? Well, Tiffany, I think uh, resource-wise, materially, there are certainly some challenges that need to be investigated, mostly on the munitions side, because that's what we've been sending a lot of. And, and we've got lines of manufacturing that are inactive right now. There are some funding concerns in there. Uh, but I would say that the, the, the money is there in the overall budget. We spend plenty of money. We could actually prioritize this along with you know things like our southern border to, to do what we need to do. My biggest concern, though, right now when it comes to the, the military and its readiness is the chain of command that starts in the White House. The readiness and the ability to actually engage in a conflict and be able to be the leadership that this nation needs to win in such a conflict, should we choose to engage in it, doesn't exist. And so that is my greatest fear. Most of the people in the military will do their job, will do their mission, and they'll want to do it the best they can. But right now, they're not adequately led to give me any confidence. I want to get to that, but on the point of munitions, how does the U.S. replenish that? You mentioned funding, but is there also manufacturing concerns? How fast can the U.S. replenish its supplies? Well, some of the concerns I've heard is that the, in order to replace everything we've sent over already will take 10 to 12 years if we started right now. 
you can cut that significantly, but not only through the funding stream, but also by reactivating lines of manufacture that are not being used right now. That is a significant concern. If you look at, let's just say you've got a manufacturer able to make 155 millimeter artillery shells, and they've got two main lines of manufacturing. Well, they may have two others that are there to be used, but they're just not running due to material to supply to it, employees to run it, uh, and the entire supply chain behind it. That's the problem. So um, we can wrap it up if we have the willpower we need to do it. The question will again come down to that willpower. And on the note of willpower, what's your understanding of the U.S. military readiness if we are, to called, if we are called into a shooting war? Generally, I'm concerned about it, but not fearful of it, because the American soldier, sailor, airman, and marine have shown throughout history their ability to adapt to any environment and overcome even the greatest odds. And sometimes it takes a while to get there, but uh, that's just the reality of history. And I'm very confident in the majority of our military forces and their willingness to win on a battlefield if called upon to, to do so. Like I said, though, I am concerned about the political will, and some of that political will is standing is in uniform to wearing a lot of stars that just aren't ready for something like this and are not right for the job. And historically, the Chinese Communist Party has said it wants the U.S. engaged in four overseas wars, one of which has to be a terror group. What's your understanding of what we're seeing right now unfolding? Well, and again, this, for those of us who work in the foreign policy and strategy arena and have for years, we watch these things develop over time. We provide the best warning we possibly can of the scenarios that will likely develop. And for the last few years, specifically, we were able to see Afghanistan. And then we cautioned about the fact that Ukraine would probably blow up next. And then we talked about something was going to happen in the Middle East. And so far, I mean, it's sadly, and unfortunately, we're batting a thousand within the people that I work with. So right now we're looking at, okay, does China start leaning in further on Taiwan? And there's a lot of reasons why they might do that. There are valid reasons why they might not and are not ready to do it. But it's one of those things that we should be looking at because the only way for China to look at Taiwan and not worry about America specifically is to keep us busy elsewhere. And what must the U.S. do now to ensure we don't see that kind of escalation? Well, first of all, I'd like to remind Americans that the uh, declaration of war on any foreign nation or entity belongs to the Congress, not to the president. And so those those discussions need to happen with the representatives of we, the American people. And we, the, we own the risk and we own the decision on whether or not we want to engage in a conflict. That is not the right and duty of a president. The president's job is to command the forces when told to do so by the Congress. That's the first thing we have to do. And second of all is to make sure that we secure our homeland first. Our southern border, we know wide open. What does that mean? We don't know who's here in the United States. But it also means that if, if, if we can build a community defense group and just be there and be prepared if needed and hopefully never are, then do that. But we got to start here at home and then we can worry elsewhere. Darren Gobb, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Tiffany. Have a good night. Ten days now, the House has not had a speaker. Republicans today nominating Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio by a slim margin. This after House Majority Leader Steve Scalise couldn't get the votes and dropped out. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us from Capitol Hill with updates. Melina, tell us more about Jordan's victory. Is it looking like the GOP has more of a plan to take this to the floor? 
Well, Tiff, Jordan's victory was very slim, and because of that, it's not looking like Republicans have a clear path forward here. Unfortunately, we're in the exact same position that we've been in all week. Republicans spent all day in a meeting in that room right behind me. They started out this morning with an organizational meeting to see where everybody was at. They moved on to a candidate forum where Chairman Jim Jordan spoke, along with the person who also ran, Austin Scott, who's a lesser-known member in Congress. Uh, then they moved on to two internal votes. But about Jim Jordan's victory here, it was very slim. That nomination vote, he only won by 124 votes, which was super surprising because that means Austin Scott, the other candidate here, the lesser-known candidate, won around 81 votes, and he says he wasn't even running for the sake, for the reason of the fact that he wanted to become the speaker, but instead he was running for the sake of trying to save the House. He said he's worried because Congress is not functioning right now, and that's the only reason why he was running, but Jordan's slim victory was also surprising considering that he did have the support from big names like former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Listen to this. Sir, are you endorsing Jim Jordan? I think Jim Jordan make a great speaker. So we saw McCarthy right after he came out, uh, out of the today's day-long meeting yet again, and he said that he was still optimistic that Jim Jordan could shore up the support needed to win a full floor house vote. That second internal vote that they took was not on the nomination itself, but instead it was asking members whether they would be willing to back Jim Jordan if they did take this to a full floor vote, and 55 members said that they were not willing to back him still, so there's still some division. Now what Republicans will be doing, they're leaving for the weekend, but Jim Jordan has his work cut out him now. He's now having to reach out to those 55 members and try to figure out a way to win them over. Here's what members are saying about Jim Jordan's chances to be able to do that over the weekend. I think certainly we are going to have a situation where people from around the country are getting involved. You're going to have people calling their members of Congress, encouraging them to support Jim Jordan, because at the end of the day, Jim Jordan is the grassroots candidate. He is someone who really resonates with the base of the Republican Party. It's not news to you news people that there are, um, there are deep um, fractures within the Republican conference. That's been the issue from the beginning. Uh, and it takes the right person to be able to manage all aspects of that. Giving him the space over the weekend to, to unify the conference, hopefully that'll work. If it doesn't, then we have to move on to a to a, to the next to the next round. And Congressman Andy Barr, that comment you just heard from him about maybe some other candidates having to step up, that's if Jim Jordan isn't able to secure those 55 votes over this weekend. So that's something we will be tracking. Now, another interesting point here and something that Republicans haven't really been talking much about is whether or not to expand the powers of the temporary speaker, the Speaker Pro Tem for Patrick McHenry, to allow them to get some legislative action moving right now while they're still trying to work this out. Democrats are now pressing Republicans on that but they're unwilling to take this path so far. Tiff? does sound like it's still unclear if we'll have a speaker by this weekend. Melina, thanks for that update. Coming up, United Auto Workers President Sean Fain updating union members on walkouts this morning. He says strikes are entering a new phase. We talked to NTD Business's Don Ma for the details. And in California, one strike ends as another continues. Negotiations fail between Hollywood actors and studios while healthcare workers at Kaiser reach a deal. Details on that and more when we come back.
Welcome back. Now turning to the ongoing United Auto Workers strike, UAW Chief Sean Fain this morning updated members on a possible expansion of the strikes. We spoke with NTD business host Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, as always, Tiff. Uh, great to be here on this Friday evening. To begin, give us a sense of what he said. Right. Uh, so Fain said earlier today this morning that they're actually entering a new phase of striking. So so for the first time since the strike began a month ago, Fain said that uh, potential future strikes uh, will not just be limited to Friday announcements anymore. He said that uh, expansion of strikes could actually happen at any time now going forward. And as for today, he did not announce any new increasing strikes. But still, just recently, uh, the United Auto Workers Union shut down Ford's biggest plant in the world. And why is Fain not waiting for Fridays anymore for strike expansions? Yeah, I think the reason for this, uh, from what I heard uh, from Sean Fain this morning, is that he doesn't want to wait anymore. He doesn't want to give uh, the big three extra time. Uh, if he sees an offer from the big three that he doesn't like, he will expand the strike immediately. He doesn't want to have a pattern for them. He wants to be unpredictable. Uh, and he's going to announce strikes with very little notice. And I think personally, shortening the amount of time between strike expansions can actually get them offers uh, faster. It can make negotiations go faster. And this may be important for them because they want to save money. They don't want to draw out the strike uh, because their strike money fund is limited. And with the strike at Ford's biggest plant, how many UAW members are on strike in total? So now about 22% uh, of around 150,000 UAW workers uh, at the Detroit three automakers are on strike. So that's about uh, 32 to 33,000 workers off the, off the job in total. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, around 8,700 union members at Ford's biggest plant were called to walk out on Wednesday. And that, let me just mention, that was a big hit for Ford because its Kentucky truck plant is its most profitable operation. It generates around $25 billion annually, which is a sixth of the company's global automotive revenue. So the, the plant builds uh, Ford's Super Duty pickup trucks, uh, the Lincoln Navigator, and Ford uh, Expedition large SUVs. And what was Ford's reaction to all of this? Well, Ford said that the decision from Fain was grossly irresponsible. Uh, but, you know, it seems the company wasn't surprised, uh, given that Fain has said that his strategy is to keep the Detroit Three wounded for months uh, through reputational damage and industrial chaos. Um, the, the reason why Fain decided to uh, strike at Ford's biggest plant was because he demanded an offer uh, from Ford, but Ford didn't give him a new offer. Uh, a senior Ford executive said the company is at the limit of what it can spend on higher wages and benefits uh, for the United Auto Workers. Um, Auto, automakers have actually made more than double uh, initial wage hike offers and even agreed to raise wages along with inflation and have given uh, improved pay for temporary workers. But it seems like the union isn't satisfied with that. It still wants higher wages. Well, Donma, thanks for that update. Thank you so much. 
Hollywood actors continue to strike after contract talks break down. Meanwhile, Kaiser has now reached a deal with healthcare worker unions after a three-day strike last week. Striking Hollywood actors hit the picket lines in full force on Thursday, a day after negotiations between Hollywood Studios and the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union broke down. The negotiations were suspended as the two sides clashed over streaming revenue, the use of artificial intelligence, and other issues at the core of a three-month work stoppage. SAG-AFTRA's chief negotiator said actors would not participate in Hollywood's upcoming award season without a contract. Well, I mean, honestly, award season is important, but it's certainly not our top priority. Our top priority is making sure we have a fair deal for our members. So, you know, if this uh, negotiation doesn't get resolved, if this strike doesn't get resolved before award season, I can assure you that SAG-AFTRA members will not be participating. The breakdown in talks interrupted attempts to end labor tensions that have put most U.S.-based film and television production on hold. It cost the California economy billions and left thousands of crew members without work. I mean, we just want protection so they can't use our face in perpetuity and continue to make money off my face in perpetuity without ever having to pay me again. They want to keep making money off the work we do and not give us the money for the work we do. And that's just not fair. We want to get back to work. We want everybody to get back to work. You know what I mean? SAG-AFTRA has been on strike since July. The union resumed negotiations with studios last week after the Writers Guild of America ended its work stoppage. Meanwhile, Kaiser Permanente and healthcare worker unions have reached a tentative deal. Last week, a three-day strike over wages and staffing levels involving 75,000 workers in multiple states officially ended on Saturday. Workers returned to their jobs in Kaiser's hospitals and clinics that serve nearly 13 million Americans. Details of the agreement were not immediately released, but both sides can expect a full announcement soon. Coming up, Israel orders civilians to evacuate the northern Gaza Strip, but where can they go? We explore one possible destination. And Hamas is armed, trained, and supported by Iran, yet an author says the White House was downplaying the connection. Find out why and what he says about possible involvement by Hezbollah when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Israel has issued an evacuation order for the northern part of the Gaza Strip, while Hamas tells local residents to stay put. The Israeli military is preparing for a major ground offensive into the territory. A Jewish teacher in France was killed in a knife attack and an Israeli diplomat was stabbed in China. These incidents came as Hamas called for a day of rage today. Congressman Jim Jordan secured the GOP nomination for House Speaker in his second try this week. An election will take place in the full House between Jordan and Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Continuing our coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, Palestinian civilians may need to flee Gaza as Israel prepares for a ground offensive. But where can they flee to? NTD's Arlene Richards looks at one possibility. Gazan civilians are under intense pressure to evacuate. But where can they go? The only land route out is into Egypt, but that country may not welcome them. They don't want the burden. They don't want the responsibility. 
They don't know how to manage them. They're, they're suffering their own big economic crisis with food and other things. Harley Lipman was a key broker of the Abraham Accords, the peace agreements between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. He believes Egypt and other Arab states should take care of the refugees. It's unknown whether any of them will. Egypt has historically restricted Gazans from entering even during violent conflicts. It says Israel and Palestine should solve their problems within their own borders. Egypt has reportedly rejected the idea of making safety corridors for the refugees. The only land route into Egypt is through the Rafah crossing. There's no way around it. There are fences, there are barricades. Uh, it, they were built starting in the early 2000s to prevent exactly this kind of, of crossing. There's an actual physical wall. Uh, Egypt has security forces on the other side of the wall. You could swim that curved route into Egypt, uh, but that's a part that's controlled very strongly by the Egyptian military and the Egyptian navy. So it's not uh, a free swim. Once you land in Egypt, you will be detained. Middle East expert Gerard Falitti says Egypt has always worried about terrorists entering borders. It's especially concerned with Hamas, which is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, a terrorist organization that once held power in Egypt. Falidi says Egypt won't want Hamas members sneaking into the country with the refugees, potentially strengthening the Muslim Brotherhood. But even if Egypt won't help, the refugees still have hope. We will likely see some international effort to help civilian people who want to leave the Gaza area do so for safety. However, ultimately, it depends on Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization, not just towards Israel and the rest of the world, but towards its own people. They're the ones who prohibit their people from leaving. Politi says because of this, the Gazans' fate is up in the air. Arlene Richards, NTD News. What's the connection between Hamas and Iran? And has the U.S. added fuel to the fire? We spoke with Lee Smith, the author of The Strong Horse, Power Politics and the Clash of Arab Civilizations. He's also the host of Over the Target on Epic TV. Lee Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me on tonight, Tiffany. To begin, we're hearing reports that Iran is behind this Israel-Hamas attack. What are we finding out about that? Well, I mean, it was to be expected from the beginning that that's that that's what was going on. I mean, that's how Hamas is armed and that's how Hamas is trained and that's how Hamas is supported. The White House was keen to obscure this bit of information for quite some time because the White House wants to partner with Iran. We've seen the sums of money that the White House has made available to Iran over the last several months. But of course, this goes back to the Obama administration when they made hundreds of billions of dollars available to the Islamic Republic of Iran. So we've known from the we've known from the very beginning that Iran was involved in the operational planning. It was simply the White House wanted to hide this information because it's embarrassing to them. And Lee, there's also reports that Hezbollah could be joining the fight against Israel. Hezbollah is more powerful than Hamas. How likely are we to see that? And how would that change the dynamic of the war? Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, the Israelis have mobilized 300,000 reservists. Um, so, of course, not all of them have been sent to the south. Some of them have been sent to the north in preparation uh, for the possibility that uh, Hezbollah might actually move on the north. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. It will depend. Uh, it will depend on what uh, what Israel does in the south and whether Iran decides to unleash Hezbollah as well. If Hamas is getting rolled up entirely in the south and it really looks like they're in danger of uh, that we may see the end of Hamas, then it wouldn't be surprising at all if Tehran uh, unleashes Hezbollah too. 
And Lee, you wrote a book on the power politics yeah. and clash of Arab civilizations titled The Strong Horse. How do you yeah. understand this war? Why now? Uh, why now? Well, I, I see it right now because the Biden administration, this is the big thing about all the money that the Biden administration has made available to the Iranians. And uh, and, and it's not just that. The, the Biden administration wants to restore the nuclear deal. The Biden administration is signaling friendship with the Islamic Republic of Iran. So it's not just weakness. We hear many people saying, oh, the Biden administration is weak. Donald Trump is really strong. It's not just weakness. It's they're signaling friendship. They're signaling that they won't do anything about it, right? Because they don't want to interfere in uh, future initiatives with the Islamic Republic. So, and, and insofar as the title is the strong horse, that's what it's that's what it's really about, right? It's about who is going to set the order for the region. Iran is taking advantage of this and saying, okay, we're going to set the order of the region. It's never been about Iran versus Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and Israel are part of the American-led order of the region. It's the U.S that directs how things are going in the region. When the U.S. turns around and says, well, I don't know, no more Israel, no more Saudi Arabia, we're going with the Iranians. That's what's happening. We're seeing that the United States has made an about face and the Iranians are taking advantage of this and they're unleashing uh, at least one of their terrorist outfits, Hamas. But as we discussed earlier, they may uh, eventually unleash Hezbollah as well. And given all that, what message should the U.S. be sending to ensure this doesn't escalate even more? Well, the, the, they're not going to, unfortunately. I mean, what they've what they've done is they've deployed naval as they've deployed a uh, carrier group uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, but that's not there to deter Hezbollah, or it's not there to uh, to support Israel. What the purpose uh, the purpose of that? is to help impose a ceasefire when the Biden administration and the international community wants to call an end to Israel's uh, counter against Hamas. The Biden administration will impose that and the carrier group is, is meant to defend that, the imposition of a ceasefire, right? It's not there in, it's not there in support of Israel. And zooming out, there's been a lot of statements from world leaders about this war, but one party that's been quite silent is the Chinese Communist Party head Xi Jinping. His foreign ministry did issue something, but he yeah. did not. What do you make of his silence? What's at stake for China in this region? Well, I mean, China is China's the head of the rising uh, anti-U.S. bloc, and that bloc includes, uh, includes Russia and uh, Iran, as well as Iran's terrorist assets throughout the Middle East. So I imagine that the CCP is very happy with developments here. It's showing, the, it's showing their strength, it's showing their power, and it's showing, uh, it, it's showing, again, it's not just a weak United States, it's a compromised United States. And when we're talking about the CCP, they're also seeing it in terms of, well, we have an entire governmental structure in the United States that supports relations with the CCP, right? It, for them, it's a further message about their rising strength. And with a particular uh, faction in the U.S. political system that is more inclined to side with the Chinese Communist Party, as well as its partnership with Iran. It's a very messed up and confusing time right now in American politics. And I know it's going to be hard for a lot of our viewers to believe it. Why is the United States tilting toward Iran? But we have to look at the details, the real facts on the ground. There's the nuclear deal and there's the money.
right? And then we look at the U.S. and the CCP. The, Joe Biden and his family are just the tip of the iceberg. We're talking about an administration. We're talking about a corporate and political elite that is 100% compromised by its relations with the Chinese Communist Party. And what will it take to reverse this trajectory? A different president, a different White House, and someone who's eager to root out. It's not only about the White House. Again, it's the legislative branch as well. It's our corporate culture, too. It's going to take someone with a lot of nerve. Donald Trump uh, took some very uh, important first steps, but there's a lot left to be done, not just regarding Iran, but also the Chinese Communist Party. Lee Smith, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, the baseball playoffs have featured numerous upsets thus far. Is the postseason format to blame? And get ready for a glimpse of a ring of fire solar eclipse this Saturday. NASA plans to conduct some scientific experiments as well. More shortly here on NTD News. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the baseball playoffs have advanced to the league championship series. And of the four teams left, only the Houston Astros had a first round bye. Do you think that layoff had anything to do with teams not playing well? No, I don't. That seems to be the popular opinion, though. You know, they got five days off for that. But the teams they played only played twice during that time. It wasn't really a huge difference. Plus, if you're rusty, doesn't that wear off after the first game? Now, you know, for the Dodgers, meanwhile, you know, this is kind of the norm for them. Great regular season, not so great postseason. The Astros, meanwhile, this is their seventh straight trip to the LCS. So I think it just shows that teams handle pressure in different ways. And, well, speaking of which, the Texas Rangers are in the ALCs under first-year manager Bruce Bochy. Are you sticking to your prediction of the Astros winning the American League? Well, I think I'm going to have to. I'm not liking their chances as much, though. You know, Bochi always has his teams playing best come October. He won three World Series titles in a five-year period with San Francisco, so he certainly knows what he's doing. But also, there was some talk between Houston and Texas uh, after Houston came back to beat them uh, for the division title. Now, we all saw what happened this week when someone upset Bryce Harper in the media. You know, he went out and took it out on the baseball the next day, so I don't recommend doing that. And now moving on to football, the Chiefs beat the Broncos last night in a game where Russell Wilson threw for just 95 yards. Are you surprised he hasn't really had a bounce back season under Sean Payton? Yeah, I'm also surprised the team is only 1-5 under Sean Payton. You know, I think it's time to give Pete Carroll his due. Wilson played 10 years under Carroll in Seattle, made nine Pro Bowls. All of a sudden he goes to Denver, his numbers go down. Meanwhile, his replacement there, Geno Smith, a career backup, all of a sudden has become a Pro Bowl performer. So, you know, I don't, clearly it's not a coincidence. I think it's safe to say that Pete Carroll really knows what he's doing with these quarterbacks. And now looking at the college game, the Pac-12, as we know it anyway, seems to be going out with a bang. Seven teams ranked in the top 25. What would it mean for the conference if USC wins at Notre Dame this weekend? It'd be huge. You know. In the Pac-12, there's probably three teams that have a legit um, claim to the playoffs right now. USC, Oregon, and Washington. If, 
If they win uh, at Notre Dame tomorrow, it really helps their strength of schedule. You know, this is a conference that's only placed two teams in a nine-year history of the college football playoffs. You know, and the, the SEC this year, they're kind of down. There's even a remote chance they could get two teams in. But it all starts tomorrow at Notre Dame. I think they've got a good shot to do it. And as always, thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Tiff. Parts of America will have a chance to catch a solar eclipse this Saturday. The moon won't completely block out the sun, which will create a ring of fire effect for viewers on Earth. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. This Saturday, millions in the Western Hemisphere will be able to experience an annular solar eclipse. The phenomenon occurs when the moon passes between the sun and the Earth. Because the moon is at its furthest point from our planet, it won't completely block out the sun. The result is called the ring of fire effect. It appears a little bit smaller in the sky than the sun and can't quite cover the entire sun. But what will happen is for some people they'll see the dark side of the moon completely surrounded by the bright rim of the sun, the ring of fire they call it. NASA plans to conduct some scientific experiments at the same time. We have a, a, a triple launch. We're launching a, one rocket just before, one during, and then one right after the, the peak eclipse. And they're going to be looking at the, the temperature of the atmosphere. They're going to be measuring the, the contents of the ionosphere. The sun will never be completely covered, so observers are advised to wear proper eye protection. Jeremiah Letta is ready. We had previously traveled to follow the eclipse. The last time we went was in South Carolina. And we went to South Carolina to capture the eclipse, to photograph the eclipse. I photograph lunar eclipse. So we always try and follow uh, big events. This Saturday's eclipse is just part one for stargazers in North America. On April 8, 2024, a total solar eclipse will be passing over Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. What drives us is it gives us a destination. So if there's an event, I'm, I'll find any event. So this happens to be the solar eclipse. So I'll say, well, let's go make a plan, a trip for this event. And then our whole vacation encompasses that one event. NASA says after April 8th's total solar eclipse, the next viewable total solar eclipse in the U.S. won't be until 2044. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.